to the Purdue Basketball Podcast. I'm Elliot Bloom, joined by the Hall of Famer, voice of the Boilermakers, Larry Clisby. And today we welcome in another Hall of Famer, Mark Monteith, joins us here on the Boilerball Podcast. Mark, thanks for taking time to be with us. Hey, my pleasure, guys. And it was an honor to go in the Hall of Fame with Cliz. Yeah, we've uh, we've talked about that uh, induction um, in a previous podcast for Larry, but you were indeed a member of that class. And uh, uh, Coach Painter and I were in attendance that day. It was a it was a pretty cool day, and for us um, sports guys, the, I think the best thing is just all the stories that you guys um, convey. But that was a, a special day for both of you. Yeah, yeah, it was nice. I mean, you know, let's be realistic. It's not like there's a Hall of Fame museum where people can go and <laughs> listen to Cliz's broadcast or read my stories or anything. And I understand the general public doesn't need to care much about it you know we're just media guys but it's always nice to be recognized you know and Liz and i have been doing what we do for an awfully long time and uh we have accumulated a lot of stories and to me that's really the best thing about (laughs) the job is you accumulate stories and you have things you can talk about and crazy experiences dealing with coaches players the public and so forth and uh it was fun to hear all that and just fun to see a lot of people that I hadn't seen in a while, so uh, that was an enjoyable day. Yeah, I, I found it the same way. It was a lot better than I thought it would be, and in yeah. the idea that you saw so many names that you've been associated with, not only that you've worked with, but that you've seen or talked to in passing, really, and then to have the opportunity to be with them and to listen to some stories from them. The other, the two things that bothered me about the whole thing was uh, one. They told us that we were supposed to be limited to the amount of time, and so I, I, I decided to do that for the first time in my life. And I had, I had two or three really good stories that I could have told. I didn't get a chance to get out, and uh, and so I failed there. I, I, I felt really bad. You did a great job, by the way. And, oh, thanks. And uh, and then the second thing was, I just, um, you know, just a moment. It kind of got to me a little bit, so. And I was really, really, really pleased and privileged that uh, Elliot and Matt showed up and and some others, uh, Rob and, yeah. of course, uh, yeah. some family members that I'm really close to. So it, it, it was a great day, I thought. Well, it was a great tribute to you that Matt and Elliot were there. And I've told people that there's not a, a team broadcaster in the country who's got a better job doing a college basketball team than you because of the relationship you have with the coaches there and with Elliot and people like that. And uh, you got a great thing going up there, Cliz. I yeah, mean, I agree. Uh, I agree 100%. Um, yeah. We're very, very, very fortunate uh, to work with these guys, and, and they treat us tremendously well and always you have. Were, you were unfortunate to go early in the alphabetical listing, and <laughs> the guy <laughs> who went before me went forever. <laughs> if you'd gone after him, you would have felt more free to tell some stories. <laughs> You're right. Yeah, that would last a while. Well, I was uh, I have I was up all night thinking about the fact that I was going to have to try to be on a show with two Hall of Famers today. So I'm going to try <laughs> to get through this as best I can. But uh, Mark uh, Monteith uh, joins us, and uh, markmonteith.com is your website, Mark. Um, I know you've put a lot of time into that. I was on there this morning, uh, checking some things out, and. Um, uh, Mark, of course, a uh, longtime sports writer on the on the scene. Anybody who um, has lived in the state, um, especially in the Fort Wayne, Indianapolis areas, knows Mark. And Purdue people know him, obviously, with the book Passion Play that uh, took place in the 80s with Coach Katie's team. 
Um, Mark's always kind of been around uh, around the sports scene uh, a lot with Purdue and also with the Pacers. But I want to go back, Mark, to um, kind of your story. And I know that you knew at a young age you wanted to be a sports writer. Um, and then talk us through kind of when you first knew you wanted to write about sports and then also what um, your decision process was to eventually end up at Indiana uh, pursuing a journalism degree down there. Yeah, I, uh, as a kid growing up, you know, I, I liked to read. That just kind of came naturally to me, I guess. Um, I used to sit in my sister's bedroom when she was at school when I was like five years old and play these records that you could read along to, you know, a story and kind of taught myself to read that way, really. And so, you know, I enjoyed that. Certainly my aptitude was much more uh, toward language and reading and so forth than it was to math and science, those kind of things. And so I always liked to read the sports section of the paper. Uh, in Indianapolis back in the early 60s, there were three newspapers, if people can believe that, um, <clears throat> Star, the News, and the Indianapolis Times. And uh, we took all three for a while. And I, you know, read those, the sports section at least. I don't know if I read the rest of the paper, but I always enjoyed that. You know, was a sports fan. I played basketball. So it all just kind of fit together. And for some reason, when I was, you know, say around 12 years old, I thought that I wanted to be a newspaper sports writer. And uh, I told the story at the Hall of Fame thing. There was a guy at our church named Corky Lamb, who was a sports writer for the news, the afternoon paper in Indianapolis, who was really good. And uh, he'd sit out there in the lobby before and after the service smoking cigarettes. <laughs> and uh, and uh, one day my mom told him, you know, that I had wanted to become a sports writer. And Corky said, well, how old is he? And she said, whatever age I was at the time, about 12. And he said, well, maybe it's not too late to change his mind. And Corky, I found out later at that time, was kind of embittered. He was toward the end of his career. Uh, things hadn't gone the way he had hoped for himself there. I think he'd wanted to be the sports editor and didn't get that. Probably felt like he was kind of, you know, being shoved aside or whatever. So, but, you know, I still knew that's what I wanted to do. And even in high school, you know, I, I thought that's what I wanted to do. I went to Ball State my freshman year, not even really aware that uh, you had a great you know, journalism program. So I thought Ball State was my only choice in state. Plus, my high school journalism teacher, guys, she was an absolute knockout. I mean, she was like, you know, she was the most beautiful woman I'd ever seen and really nice. And she was only like five years older than us. She, you know, really young. So she, you know, had gone to Ball State and we used to go up there on weekends for these journalism workshops and everything. So I think that had an influence as well. And uh, you, thought by the way, younger, her, you thought she had a younger sister in Muncie. <laughs> i don't know man. i mean she's really she was just a classy beautiful lady her son by the way wound up being president obama's uh head speechwriter so, oh wow. wow that was pretty cool yeah and uh you know pictures at the white house of her son marrying somebody there with the president and everybody so anyway i went there my freshman year but this didn't feel like it was a good fit for me transferred to iu and uh that was a better fit you know i <clears throat> the opportunity to cover you know, a Bob Knight basketball team was invaluable for a young aspiring journalist because you're not going to meet any more difficult coaches to cover than him. And uh, being around a lot of other talented people on a college newspaper that was really good and had high standards and everything, it was great training ground for me. And I uh, went from there. You know, I had to take a job in Marion, Indiana, uh, out of college, like a 22,000 circulation paper. 
fact, had a little reunion up in Marion yesterday with some of those people. I hadn't been back there in a while. Wow. And um, there to Fort Wayne, worked in Fort Wayne for the Journal-Gazette for 11 years, but half of those were out of Indianapolis, which was a great set up for me to be two hours from the office. I covered a lot of IU and <laughs> Purdue and uh, Pacers and Colts stuff. I was a columnist for a while. And really one of the best things that ever happened to me came in that 1987-88 season when, you know, season on the brink had come out and that was a national sensation. You know, the book John Feinstein did on uh, IU season. Right. And I knew Purdue was going to be good. In 87, 88, with Troy Lewis, Todd Mitchell, Leverett Stevens being seniors. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they had tied for the Big Ten title the year before. So, obviously, hopes were high. And Coach Gady said he would give me total access uh, to follow that team. And uh, the editor in Fort Wayne, Craig Klugman, Klugman uh, gave me a leave of absence, paid me half salary to write one column a week, a Sunday column. Uh, so I could kind of survive. And I took an apartment in Lafayette, rented out my place in Indianapolis, and followed that team. And another great experience. You know, that was like graduate-level basketball as far as media coverage, to see it from all possible angles. And, you know, be an insider and be in those coaches' meetings and be in the locker room and get to know the players, that kind of thing, was really a great experience for me. So, Well, one, you know. one question I had, when you, so when you were in Bloomington – and you were the um, the editor of the student paper, if I if I remember correctly. I was the sports editor. Yeah. Sports editor, yeah. Um, so Bob Knight's the basketball coach. Who was the football coach at the time? Uh, Lee Corso. So yeah, and of course, you know, pretty good argument can be made that Lee Corso is more well known for his college game day, um, yeah. you know, career than he is for his coaching career. But um, still, was a pretty. Um, a pretty colorful character when he was coaching um, at the college ranks and, and, and in Bloomington. But talk about, I mean, you, you kind of hit on a little bit, a great experience for any journalist. You kind of, you basically are covering uh, the, the best team in college basketball, certainly around those times. Um, and then I, I don't, I, I can't imagine the football team was uh, a juggernaut at all, but, <laughs> no. uh, but of course, uh, Coach Corso had to be uh, pretty fun to be around at times. Yeah, well, I really, I, I did some IU football stories, but not many. I was the sports editor of the Daily Student uh, the semester they won that championship in 1976. So okay. I didn't actually cover the team. I was the guy in the office having to put out the paper, and a couple other guys covered the team. I had the honor of covering <laughs> IU's basketball team the following year, the only <laughs> year Bob Knight did not go to a postseason tournament. And it was wild, man, because five guys quit the team uh, beginning before the season, during the season, and after the season. Five guys from that team wound up quitting the program. And, um, you know, a couple of them criticized Knight on the way out the door. You could imagine he's got after going undefeated and winning the national championship in 76. Right. And suddenly the following November, some freshman kid leaves the team and says Knight had dehumanized him, that his knees were shaking when he went to the foul line. The, he revealed an incident that had happened in the locker room where Knight backed up Rain, Wayne Radford against the wall and was screaming at him. And suddenly, you know, you could imagine the uh, impact that had. We were copywriting stories in the Daily Student. You know, the other we always had two guys on that beat, and the other guy and I worked on it together, and we were copywriting stories because we were getting exclusive information, exclusive interviews with some of the players. 
So let's and, talk, uh, if we could, let's talk about that just a little bit, though. I didn't mean to interrupt you, though. If you want, that's fine. If you don't want to quit the, uh, finish that thought, go ahead. But I was just going to say that, you know, everybody in the world, it seems to me, knew what Bob Knight was up to. It just seems like he was that type of guy. And, and anybody who played any organized sports back then, football, basketball, baseball, at the high school level, got themselves a little bit of Bob Knight, yes, especially in Indiana. But, but I mean, I'm from Ohio, and, and our coaches weren't. They weren't stand-up guys when it came to, to punishment and stuff. I mean, they never ran. It was like being in the Army, man. There was no democracy in a, in a, in a, you know, a program. And nowadays, nowadays, and, and I mean, it's been going on for 20 years, but nowadays if anyone slips up now, boy, it's, it's all over. And, and we've seen this with the Me Too movement now that the people's careers have ended like tomorrow based on, you know, something that's been said. And but but back then it was like that. It was like that in, in, in sports, don't you think? Yeah. Oh, you mean the power that coaches had? Yeah, yeah. The, yeah. Oh, no question. Yeah, it was a different year. That was probably kind of the beginning of when players were, you know, not going to necessarily, you know, say yes or no sir and run through the brick wall you know they would maybe start to question you know the 60s i guess began a movement of questioning authority and we saw that come into more fruition in the 70s but bob knight was such an extreme character though i mean i don't know of any coach that i've ever been around all these years who went as far as he did in the way he dealt with his players the name calling the screaming uh berating you know i mean he he did dehumanize players at times and you know, and it was always an interesting thing to cover him because the the general public, or at least the core of his supporters, had an impression of him as being, uh, oh, he stands for what's right. Yeah, exactly, he, exactly. You know, his kids love him and blah, blah, blah. And he did stand for a lot of things that were right. Uh, and he was a great coach. But at the same time, you always heard these stories. You know, if you got to know people, you <laughs> yeah, always yeah. heard these stories oh, like I, you would, Cliff. Yeah, I've heard a lot <laughs> of them. What was going yeah. on behind the scenes, yeah. man? And it was like nothing else. I mean, no other coach in the country, I don't think, was ever. No, if you, you ask, know, if you talk to the players. Yeah, if you talk to the players. And I've had the opportunity to talk to several that he coached. You know, I, you know, I typically just say, hey, tell me. Tell me a great night story. And it's, <laughs> I'll, tell you, I'll tell you a great night story. Yes, I remember talking to Brian Evans not too long ago, and oh, oh he's got some. Oh, he's got he got some dandies that I've. Well, made. you know, when I did my one on ones that Elliot referred to that are on my website, I uh, whenever I did a former RU player, that was always going to be a question like, "Tell me a good Bob Knight story," <laughs> you know, and and you know, even the ones they felt they could tell on the radio were were good, you know. And I remember Brian Evans had some. I also, but you would always hear. Not always, but often hear even more extreme stories, you know, when the microphone was off and there were things they weren't comfortable talking about. So my point with Knight was always that, you know, a lot of other coaches out there are doing the positive things he's doing as far as having a discipline program and making kids get their degree or, you know, pushing them that direction, all that kind of thing without going to the, the crazy extremes that he went to. Right. And one I, of those coaches was Gene Cady. I mean, won't. I always took, you know, Gene Cady is the guy you think Bob Knight is, actually. And, you know, so that was always kind of frustrating to see some coaches not get as much credit. You know, when they were also, you know, emphasizing education and running a discipline program and making their players better, 
but they weren't as crazy as night, and uh, they didn't get recognition for that. Right. They don't have to go. Those two things don't have to go hand in hand. Like there's a you right. can do you can do both. You can be uh, more civil and but and uh, and still run a clean and and uh, virtuous program. There there's a I think we've talked about it. I know our coaches have talked about it. I've talked about it with Coach Painter and Clez and I have kind of touched on it a lot in this podcast uh, or in past podcasts about the day, you know, the days of um, the Bob Knights, Gene Cadys. I don't want to lump them together necessarily, but just coaches that were very demanding um, to their players, those days are, are pretty much over. Um, you know, there's a few guys in the college game today. There's no guys in the NBA game. Um, there's a few guys in the college game that can be demanding. Um, Say one, Bobby Huggins, maybe. <laughs> but but you know we've seen it up close with Coach Huggins in the scrimmages. We do scrimmages every year with West Virginia, uh, the closed secret scrimmages. And as hard as he is on those guys and huddles and and you know maybe in their face and that kind of thing. As soon as they walk out the gym, they're patting each other on the back and joking around and goofing around. And so that's that's the side that people don't necessarily see now that would never have happened back in like you know bob knight's day they weren't getting on the bus and cutting up with coach knight you know it was that wasn't going on like that's the difference today is that you even if you're a hard charger between the lines you understand that once you get outside those lines you need to have a human side to you i think and i think that's the biggest difference if you were just full go all the time i don't think those guys make it anymore in this day and age Probably not, but I don't think that's a bad thing. Do you? I mean, I think there's no. There's I, I think wrong it, with it. absolutely. I think I agree. I think it's a. It's been changed for the good. I think that. Uh, yeah. My, you know, my dad's a. My dad was a Vietnam vet, and he had all these stories about the sergeants breaking guys down. You know, as they're preparing to go to Vietnam, and that was certainly there. And I under I understand that methodology. I understand that approach, and it certainly has um, some has had some success. But I think there's other ways to have that success as well that maybe um, doesn't dehumanize the person as you referenced. So yeah, and I think before Bob Knight, coaches weren't like that. I mean, he was kind of he kind of ushered in a, a, a temporary era of doing it that way and influenced a lot of coaches. But if you go back to coaches of the you know, I mean, did Piggy Lambert, I think he was close to his players and, right. and you know, had a relationship with him. And I've talked to guys who played for Branch McCracken, and they all really liked him. And, yeah, and he was tough and kind of intimidating, but he was also their buddy off the court, that type of thing. And, you know, they said that he, Branch McCracken, would stand at the corner of the court when players walked on for practice and shake hands with every player as they took the court, you know, that kind of thing. And so I, yeah, think, I, I, I don't think Bob Knight was typical – of the way coaching was all along, I think he changed things and coaches imitated him, uh, which usually didn't work out for those coaches. Boy, I'll tell you one thing. And then thing, it went away. I'll tell you one thing, you really saw a lot of, you know, working high school games in the state at, at a young age was, boy, you talk about night having the influence on high school coaches. Oh, My yeah. goodness. Yeah. It was un- youth league coaches. You know? Yeah, yeah, it was unbelievable. I mean, you'd, you'd go to, like, you'd see someone from out, let's say outside of this area and you go and we did that a lot uh you know mccutcheon harrison jeff played a lot of teams that weren't around here and we go do one of those games and all of a sudden you see some guy come out in the plaid coat and you'd have you know <laughs> and you'd say oh here we go, here we go. <laughs> and, yeah. and start you beating those officials screaming at their kids on saturday morning you know thinking that was a way to get them to play hard and you know you guys know I me mean, coaches 
if you're a successful college coach, boy, you got a lot of power, and you can abuse that power very easily. And if you're winning championships oh. or, you know, contending for championships, you can get away with a lot. Well, and, just right? like you said, you just said it earlier, the, the one thing that wasn't mentioned was the three national championships. And when you talk about that, that's, that's all you got to do. You have one of those, and everybody just exalts you. It's yeah. just the way. And it isn't like that anymore, I understand. I mean, we've had a lot of instances now with with head coaches, pretty uh, affluent ones that uh, haven't done well in recent. Well, Rick Pitino is a great example. Yeah, and uh, so so I think I think it certainly has changed and changed for the better. But uh, boy, he was a he was quite a polarizing figure. I I always have <laughs> I always have this story, my own Bob Knight story, and this was in the early nineties, I think, and. I was doing television at WLFI, and we had a pool uh, press conference with them, and it was our beat writers from any of which you were once part of. And, you know, when we had that, Indianapolis Star would always cover us. And But we had, um, you know, it was an IU-Purdue game, and it was a big game, and so, so Knight shows up for uh, this interviewing process, and there's about 10 of us, 12 of us, a bunch of TV guys from Indy, and then I was the local guy, and and uh, so we get down to a discussion. It's my turn to ask a question. I asked a question he didn't like, and basically it was it was a stupid question on my part. You know, it was hey, you know, <laughs> pretty much, hey, tell us what uh, you plan to do against Purdue tonight, uh, strategy wise. And he looked at me like you out of your mind, kid. <laughs> You know, hey, you know, take a break. I'm out of here. I'll see you guys all later. And then he, he just took off, and he was done. And the rest of the guys look at me like, you clown, man. You just cost, you just cost <laughs> Thanks me. Thanks for breaking up the press. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And I tell you, I walked away from that, and I said to myself, I'm never going to have – I'm never going to – well, I'm never going to interview Knight again. And while I'm at it, I'm never interviewing a, a visiting coach again. And if you and you know this, Al, I mean, we're we're only network for years. It didn't interview the visiting coach, right? And right. Uh, and that was the reason I didn't want to be embarrassed by some clown that wanted to get on there and rip me and decide <laughs> and decide that he was it was time to end the interview based on you know a question I asked. Yeah, dumb yeah. question. All I had to do is say. You know, like Pop does on the NBA games, or like uh, Steve Kerr did the other night. Right. Give him a yeah. give him a give him a quick question, give him a quick answer, and leave. <laughs> you know, but not him. He just said, oh, yeah. "He said you're a fool, and I'll see you later." <laughs> <laughs> he was such a dominating presence that I've got. I truly believe that while he was coaching at IU, and probably for a few years after. If three or more sports writers from the state of Indiana who covered him were ever together, and it might be at the Indianapolis 500, it might be anywhere, it might be August, the conversation would always turn to Bob Knight. I mean, I'm, and I mean literally always. Uh, <laughs> he was that kind of presence within the state, and everybody had stories, and he was always in the news for something anyway. I mean, there wasn't a season that went by that he didn't do something that by today's standards would be absolutely crazy. Either something he said in a post-game press conference or, you know, boycotting the Big Ten preseason coaches, you know, <laughs> meetings in Chicago. Oh, I mean, yeah. he did stuff like oh, that yeah. routinely and got away with so oh, much. Right. And, uh, you know, so he was just, I mean, if you weren't 
like an adult during that period, you wouldn't understand how crazy it was. Mark, where were you? Um, what are your one of the best stories I've ever heard you talk about was Coach Katie's first season um, in Bloomington, his first game as a Purdue mm-hmm. coach in Bloomington. Where who were you working for at that time? Uh, Fort Wayne newspaper, Fort Wayne Journal Gazette. Okay, yeah. so you were with Fort Wayne. You were covering. Were you on the Purdue or Indiana beat, or just writing in general? I, I covered both. I covered both. Okay, whoever so, had the biggest game if they played on the same day. Right. So, and for Purdue fans, obviously, uh, Lee Rose is here two years, um, goes to a Final Four. Coach Katie comes in, um, in before the nineteen eighty season. So this would be the first game. Um, in Bloomington that Coach Katie is coaching the Boilermakers in. And I'll never forget you telling the story about how that game went down. But then probably the biggest thing that came out of that game was the post-game press conference for Coach Katie in Bloomington. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, for Coach Katie's first game in Bloomington. And uh, early in the game, uh, a referee is apparently blocking Knight's view of the play. The game's going on. And Knight stands up and grabs a referee by the back of his belt and yanks him backward, you know, to get him out of the way and probably yells at him at the same time. And the referee kind of stumbled. He didn't fall down. But here Knight physically moved a referee while the game's going on. And the referee didn't call a technical foul. So Katie jumps up, <laughs> you know, runs onto the court to protest, and he gets hit with a technical foul. <laughs> so, you know, Coach Katie's not too pleased with how these things are going down there. So after the game, uh, which Indiana won. Uh, Coach Katie walks into the post-game press conference at the uh, the room they had down there for that. And as soon as he hits the doorway, he says, "Hey, you guys don't know me very well, but I'm not going to put up with that." You know, and he's throwing out some words and says, "I'll fight the ass till the world falls in." I remember that line exactly. "I'll fight the ass till the world falls in." It's not fair that he intimidates the officials, and he's going on and on. And this is like, "Oh, okay, this is Coach Katie." So, yeah. but that's that's the kind of power Knight had. You know, to, he could physically grab a referee by the belt and yank him backward and not get hit with a technical foul. But I remember, I remember when we had this conversation one time, um, and I think you really, um, I think you summarized it perfectly when you said that was kind of Coach Katie's official introduction to the Purdue fan base. Like, yeah. you know, yes. forget a yes. forget an introductory press conference or things like that. Like, and here as a Purdue fan, and I've been a lifelong Purdue fan, um, you know, growing up, it was always, you had to overcome those guys down in Bloomington. And, uh, you, and you, I remember this conversation we had and you said that he was the perfect guy for that task because here's a guy that was going to be the last guy to be intimidated. Um, and he really did. He kind of set the tone that day in that press conference. Absolutely. And that carried on, you know, that carried on throughout the entire time they were together. And, you know, I think even IU fans grew to love Coach Katie for that reason, that he would fight. You know, he'd fight for you. And whereas other coaches in the Big Ten really did seem intimidated by Coach Knight, and they had a, they'd go into Bloomington and just never win a game, you know, Coach Katie has some great wins down there, as Cliz knows. And uh, there were some just classic games in Bloomington and Lafayette. In fact, I'd say, you know, maybe the most memorable segment of my career was IU-Purdue games in the 1980s, you know, when you right. had – you know, that the, the two teams tied for the Big Ten title in 87, Purdue won it in 88, 
and there was just some fantastic games. And they, you know, those the coaches were very similar in that they emphasized defense and shot selection. They were the two teams in the Big Ten that made more free throws than their opponents even attempted because of they got the ball inside, they got fouled, they got good shots. They weren't just jacking up jumpers. Of course, this was the era before the three point shot really was used like it is today. Right. But still, just some classy games. I remember a game at Purdue in the 86-87 season when they wound up time for the title where every starter, 10 starters in that game were averaging in double figures. And in that era when, you know, teams didn't score as much, that's pretty incredible. Tells you the balance they had, uh, the, you know, the discipline they had. I remember Doug Lee had a good scoring game the game before and got his average up to 10. Uh, So in that game in Lafayette, which Purdue won, in West Lafayette, you know, all 10 starters were averaging double figures. And they just, they were just great games. And, you know, no arena has ever been louder than Mackey Arena when Indiana comes to town. Right. uh, Particularly in those days. Well, 1988, um, my producer for the television show at that time uh, approached Coach Katie. And he asked me, I mean, Stu Metzger, he asked me before this happened, he said, uh, you think, you think Gene would let us do an all an all IU day situation, put it on? And I said, well, yeah, I think he'd let you do it. I think he'd let you have access, but I don't know what would happen if we lost at home. Right. I don't know. I don't know if we'd have a show. I mean, we'd probably have to do something else. Right. An <laughs> and, alternate ending. Yeah, we'd have to have something <laughs> exactly. And and. Uh, but I remember Gene said, yeah, come on. And it was so good. I mean, for yeah. for a schlocky market, to be honest with you, in those days, and especially in television, that was really a, that was a class show because he gave us total access and Stu really – Really nailed it when he when he got his pregame, you know how he did his board and how he gave his talks and all that. And it was, oh, it was good. And we won, barely, yeah. I'm sure, but we won. And I know, I know, I, I was at ease after it ended because <laughs> <laughs> I walked in there and I congratulated him. I said, "Gee, Merry Christmas!" Exchanged some profanities and said, "Man, am I glad you won this game? You just saved my life." I think Larry that that was the season I was doing the book and he had coach Katie had given me permission to bring a photographer into the locker room uh, before and after games and uh, we used some of those pictures in passion play as a guy named who was actually a university photographer and I think that kind of opened the door so suddenly you know there's TV cameras in there yeah he can handle more media it, yeah. was in the locker room yeah. but it was good stuff it was great stuff so Mark let me ask you and and Cliz kind of alluded to it uh, or, you know, the, the behind-the-scenes access. So as you do the book, now you, as you mentioned, played high school basketball. You obviously were around big-time basketball in, in Bloomington with the national title team at 76. Um, you had been working then professionally, what, around a decade, um, covering all kinds of basketball. When you went behind the scenes with the Purdue staff for Passion Play, what was the biggest, um, I guess, eye-opener for you, or what was the one thing that you thought, boy, I didn't realize this being someone that, before you got that inside access, so to speak, what was the biggest eye-opener or, or maybe surprise for you? Yeah, I think <clears throat> a couple things. One, just the amount of preparation that goes into every game, You know, the work that goes into preparing for every single opponent, You know, sitting in those coaches' meetings and 
you know, how detailed it all gets. And then also the emotion that goes into it. You know, right. that Purdue team only lost uh, two, what, two games, I think, or three games during the season. Two only lost two Big Ten games. And but those few games they lost, man, you would have thought it was the end of the world. Right. Know? Just the reaction to it. And even sometimes when they they'd be winning three or four, but not quite playing to potential and all the angst yeah. that goes into <laughs> yeah. trying to get that team to play better. <laughs> you know, and you guys know how Coach Katie is, how he reacts and overreacts to things. And yeah. he um, you know, you would think it would have been a joy ride, but it wasn't by any stretch of the imagination. So I mem- I remember I did I remember doing uh a sit down interview with Larry and coach Katie's office for the Sunday TV show. And I remember saying that, you know, I found out that these games are only the tip of the iceberg. You know, people see the games and see the fun and the joy and glory of winning a big game, but they have no idea what went on behind the scenes to get to that point. So that's something that really comes forward to you. The other thing that jumped out at me was how it reminded me how young college kids are at that time. I'm in my early thirties. But I, in a lot of ways, those guys are still kids, you yeah. know, and they're kind of in, they're making the transition to manhood there. And you're just reminded by how young they are and how immature they can be at times and how silly they can be, those kind of things. But that's also part of the appeal, you know, I mean, right. uh, you know, you, you feel for guys like that and your coaches have an opportunity to help guys grow into men. But I was just reminded <laughs> how young, you know, fart jokes and stuff like that. You know, I mean, so many things going on in the locker room. And that team had so many colorful personalities with Everett Stevens and, uh, you know, Troy Lewis and guys like that. I got to know Tony Jones well. and uh, So that really jumped out at me as well. Well, it's a, that is a part that, uh, especially in this day and age now with um, social media and the ever-expanding all-access element that goes along with uh, college sports because there's a branding element there. You know, we're we're trying to get our guys' personalities out there because it helps stir interest in our program and it helps sell tickets and recruit and all that. Um, but the flip side of that is um, they, are, they are still 18 to 22-year-old kids and I mean, think about some people who, if you if you don't grow up in that environment, few of us do. Um, if somebody had a camera on you at one of your worst moments, emotional <laughs> emotional moments in college, people yeah. it make their skin crawl. Oh yeah. Um, and these guys sometimes have it. You know, you lose uh, to a rival or on a buzzer beater or a close game, and the first thing that happens when that horn sounds is cameras run out and put you know and get right in your face, and. Uh, it is a reminder, like how do you handle that? I mean, I can't think of any better preparation for life, I guess, in some ways than it makes you grow up in a hurry. And as you say, when you get behind the scenes on that, you, you get a little taste of what some of the guys go through because a guy may show up on a Wednesday night and average come into the game averaging 20 points and he has eight and everybody says, well, it was great defense. And they don't realize that the guy's girlfriend dumped him the day before. And yes. you or I could have guarded him and he would have had eight that night. So <laughs> That's right. Oh, that's right. No question. You know, there's so many, you know, they're, they're supposed to be students, you know, so they might have a big test the next day or they may be feeling like they're falling behind and they're worried about remaining eligible, that kind of thing. And you say it could be girlfriend problems or so many things going on in their lives that people don't think about. And, you know, not all these guys are, are going to be pros. And so their level of motivation might not be the same. They may just want to be having some fun playing college ball. You know, right. and they don't want to work as hard as the coach wants them to work, that kind of thing. So, But I'll say this, Elliot, that uh, 
you know, people, older people, um, people like Liz and I, you know, <laughs> in our 60s, <laughs> will sometimes look back and when, oh, kids today, you know, kids today, this aren't like what they used to be. I say BS on that. I think the kids today uh, in major college basketball and in the NBA, for that matter, are really far more mature than the guys from our so-called era. You know, I just, I really believe I that the agree. experiences yeah. I've had. Cliz, you agree with that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. because you, when you think about it, and you think about the access that uh, that TV networks have with these kids now, compared to the way it used to be. Now, when I was growing up, Big Ten had one game a week that was televised. One game a week on a major network. That was before ESPN. Then ESPN came in, and they started the twenty four seven idea. And you right. know, it took ten, fifteen years before that. Everything that has happened in media coverage and everything that's happened in terms of salaries and income and all this, everything that I have had a chance to cover, I've had it wrong every single time. <laughs> I, I've said this will, this cannot be, this cannot be sustainable. It won't happen. They're not going to pay guys a million dollars a year. By the way, LeBron's option year is 35 million <laughs> that's one season and he's worth it by the yes. day standards but when you think of that i mean it's just it's just mind-blowing but as you guys were mentioning when those kids those kids get hit with stuff all the time and every once in a while one of them will go off and and, and kind of not portray themselves real well but it's understandable you can see it happen and here I am, you know, I'm now 71 years old. Well, heck, when I was 55, if we lost a game by one point, gosh knows what I might have said, you right, know. And right. so, and and not only off air, on the air. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So, you, yeah. so you're so you saying, geez, and these kids have so much composure compared to you. And they do. I mean, they really do. I mean, some of them aren't as quite mature as some others, but that's, you know. That's, that's life. That's life, yeah. That's yeah. what to be. And people should never think that the star players of, you know, the 50s, 60s, whatever, that they didn't have their moments, too. I mean, I, right. you know, I, I've gotten to know Jimmy Rail well. He you know, was All-American yeah, at IU yeah, in the yeah. early 60s, and he's actually a great supporter now of Purdue's program, a close yep. friend of Matt Painter's and, and Matt's dad. And, you know, he, you know, he loved Purdue really more than IU after he got out of college. But Jimmy often told the story that you know he he got kicked off the team in practice one day he was mad he they'd had a game at iowa and it didn't go well for him for whatever reason he was edgy he he threw the ball away in practice and coach mccracken you know got on him a little bit you know watch the passes there jimbo come on now yeah and jimmy rail threw the ball <laughs> a two-handed chest pass to mccracken so why don't you stick that up your you know what and walked off the court and mccracken says you walk off that court young man you're off this team Real says that'll suit me just fine, and he walks to the locker room and realizes then he made a big mistake. And uh, and then the next day, though, they, near, he'll tells you something about media too. The sports writer for the Bloomington paper, who was a good friend of Rails, brokered a negotiation where they agreed that if Rail apologized to the team, he could be back on it. Rail driven home to Kokomo. He quit the team, but he apologized the next day to his teammates. And uh, then the next day on Saturday scored 56 points against Michigan State. (laughs) Well, and no one knew what happened before that. And Rayo is a colorful character. I I got to know him uh, through Coach Painter, and and actually Matt's first year we stopped um, and had coffee with uh, with with Jimmy and 
yeah. he, he told story after story oh, and yeah. it, i mean it was it was gold and i just sat there and lapped it up and he he had one story i guess when they brought everybody back to the field house when they opened uh Kitsiko field house and now banker's life obviously um they had all the 50 greatest players i think yeah. in the state of indiana back and rail was one of them and uh, Bobby Plump was there, who obviously hit the shot from Ireland, and the movie Hoosiers is based on it. Um, he came up and was getting these uh, – everybody was getting autographed basketballs and passing them around so they could have a little keepsake. And Jimmy and, – and Plump went up to Jimmy and said, we well, signed my ball, Jimmy. And Jimmy's, Jimmy looked at him and goes, Bob – he goes, you hit one shot. I hit thousands of shots. <laughs> <laughs> That's but, Jimmy, man. But yeah, if you know Jimmy, I mean, that is Jimmy. So, well, Jimmy our, was Jimmy was promoting Coach Matt Painter to Michigan State. You know, trying to get him, trying to get Judd Heathcote interested in in offering a Matt, which he did. Right. And uh, he was kind of Matt's agent, and he uh, he told the story recently when I talked to him that uh, Heathcote called him one day. First time they talked, is ah oh, Jimmy Rail, Indiana's all-time leading scorer. And Rail said, "No, I'm not. A, I'm not the all-time leading scorer. But if I'd played Michigan State every game, I would have been. You know, <laughs> he had one year against Michigan State in two games, he scored 100 points, 56 and 44. Yeah, he, <laughs> he said, if I played you guys all the time, I would have been. Well, so. he told he told us he said uh, McCracken told him one time he needed to look for his teammates more as being too selfish. So he said, okay, we'll have it your way. And he said that he spent the whole game passing. And he said, I only scored six and we lost. And he said, then after the game was over, he said, McCracken looked down and said, all right, we'll go back to your way. And he said, so with that, the following game was one of those Michigan State games. I think he had like 51 against them. Well, something. you know what? That probably is what – I mentioned that game at Iowa, but that was the game where Jimmy yeah. like kind of refused to shoot. Yeah. And then everybody's on edge and, you know, he got kicked <laughs> out of practice. <laughs> and, by, and by the way, Rick Mount, you know, he quit the team at Purdue a couple times. Yeah. And had to be talked back onto it. So, you know, the star players – you know, people talk about oh, today, they have egos. You know, they have egos. Oh, yeah, is what you're yeah, saying. and that has never been. It's always been that way. Well, and, Jimmy gave Matt and I a story, and then we'll we'll move on to something else here. But but Jimmy said that, and and I think most people would say that the two greatest shooters in Indiana basketball history are probably Rick Mount. Mountain and Jimmy Ray. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I don't think there's very you don't get much argument about that. Um, and Jimmy said they were in, at an event together one time. This was a number of years ago, but they were both clearly way out of the game and, and uh they they talked each other into playing a game of horse and they went over to jimmy's i think jimmy's backyard it was at jimmy it was in jimmy's driveway and yes. they were shooting they were playing horse in jimmy's driveway and jimmy tells yeah. a story that mount got him down h-o-r-s to nothing and jimmy fought his way back and he said they were out there for two hours shooting and finally they called it a draw yeah, now, it did, you know, and that's the story Jimmy gave. I don't know. Maybe Rick has a different version, but if he does it's have just, a different version. Yeah. <laughs> Rick does have a different version. Yeah, I don't know who's the truth. But Mount had been in Kokomo doing a clinic at the high school, and actually went over to Rail's house, and they wound up, you know, playing horse in Jimmy's driveway, and uh, they, it ended in the draw. But they tell different stories of how it got to that draw. So yeah, but I but can that, imagine that, it probably went on filmed. quite on quite a long time. I can imagine so. Yeah. Oh yeah, but pretty cool stuff. So, um, so you you wrap up the Passion Play project, and then at, how how long after did you make your way down and uh, start working for the Indianapolis Star? Yeah, I uh, see that was in 1988, and I worked for the Fort Wayne paper for a couple more seasons, and uh, and then things just kind of changed. I felt well, you know, they had lied to me. Basically, the uh, management there. I I had once had a job opportunity in Louisville, and 
they told me, look, we can't pay you any more money, but we're really committed to you working out of Indianapolis and you being a columnist, this kind of thing. So I stayed because I was loving what I was doing. But a couple of years later, suddenly they want me to move back to Fort Wayne mm-hmm. and do some other things. So I left, you know, the paper and freelance for a while and wound up working for a book publishing company, a sports book publisher as an editor there. And that was a good experience. But then I was fortunate enough to get back into newspapers in 1993 with the Indianapolis News, the afternoon paper, um, doing college basketball stuff. So I did that. And then the, the two staffs merged and suddenly I'm with the star and then suddenly I'm covering the Pacers, you know, starting in the mid 90s. So. That was really fortunate for me. I didn't really have a goal of covering the Pacers, but I wound up doing it and did it at the perfect time, you know, during the Larry Bird seasons and after that. So, well, and one uh, of the kind of fell together. And the, really, the heyday of the modern Pacers with Reggie Miller and, and as you said, Bird being the coach, um, making the, the run the NBA Finals. Um, and really, the I guess the NBA, I guess, high water mark. I mean, obviously, they had their success in the ABA. Um, but just some, uh, I know I've just, I think that's where a lot of people have gotten to know your name is, is all those great Pacers, you know, seasons and covering those guys. And, uh, and as you said, just some great times to be on that beat and a great time for the paper too. I mean, the Indianapolis Star was, you know, you had all these great events going on, Colts, Pacers, the race, all that stuff you had, you know, that was a time when I grew up reading the paper and you always had a couple columnists, Robin Miller and, and Bill Benner and, it just seemed like a really good time to be doing what you were doing. Yeah, it was. You know, for me, it was like perfect timing because I, um, uh, my first season covering the Pacers was Larry Brown's last. Mm. And that was kind of a good warm up for me, an opportunity to get acclimated without a lot of pressure. That team did not make the playoffs. They had a couple key injuries. Rick Smith and Derek McKee missed about half a year. And Brown had one foot out the door anyway right. all season. So I kind of got acclimated to the NBA that way. And then suddenly Larry Bird comes in as the coach. I mean, yeah. you know, just a remarkable thing. And I'll never forget, you know, during rumors are starting to fly that the, the Pacers were talking to Larry Bird and he wants to coach and all this kind of thing. And I had put out a call to his uh, representative down in Florida, a woman named Jill Leone, who was really good, asking, you know, can I get Larry Bird on the phone? Didn't think I would ever get it. But one night I'm at home and my phone rings and I hear, hey, Mark, this is Larry Bird. And my first <laughs> thought was, yeah, right. You know, I started laughing like one of my friends is playing a prank on me. Then I quickly realized, why well, that is Larry Bird. So, you know, we, <laughs> we talked for a while and he just told me that well he's thinking about it nothing's official but uh, you know it may happen that kind of thing so i was able to get a story out of that but that was just a great experience you know to have a guy like larry bird come in and coach and the players were so excited to have him as their coach you know larry brown to kind of beat him down the year before when larry brown gets unhappy he wants everybody to be unhappy as great a coach as he is you know he'll wear you out Mm -hmm. over time and larry bird comes in with a whole fresh attitude uh, talking positively about guys like Jalen Rose, who Brown had buried on the bench, and and this revived everything. And I've never seen professionals that excited about playing and you know playing for a particular coach because a lot of those guys had played against Bird, right? And you know had a full appreciation for his talent. And uh, so that was really a honey. They had a couple honeymoon seasons. Actually, the third year when they went to the finals was the most difficult year. But the first couple of years were honeymoon, and you had. You know, Reggie Miller and, and Chris Mullen comes in yeah, and, yeah. you know, all these great players and, you know, just a great experience for me to, 
to cover a guy like that and a team like that. Well, and now you um, do a lot of work for the Pacers um, in what you're doing now and, and covering the team in-house. Is that right? Yeah. You know, I, I do write. It's like a part-time job, basically writing for their website and covering the team. And, you know, even to this day, I, I'm a little uncomfortable, you know, getting a paycheck by the team, you know, having worked for newspapers all those years. And But really, it hasn't. it's evolved into where it's okay. It's hardly any different than writing for the newspaper. Uh, right. I've, you know, been able to be, you know, very honest and uh, critical at times about games or teams or that kind of thing. I'm not going to write a column saying somebody should be traded or fired, but right. uh, it's really not that different. And it's, it's fortunate that the teams have generally been good, you know, so yeah. what are you going to say anyway? There's nobody there who, you know, should be getting uh, bounced out of there. So it, it's been okay. It's kept me involved, you know, at the games, uh, networking opportunities, and just kind of kept me in circulation. So it's been a good, part-time situation for me that allowed me to do some other things at the same time. I, I, I will say, though, and a lot of teams do this now, they have, um, uh, I guess, older guys that uh, have, you know, with experience that know their way around a league, and they will hire them to do work for their websites. This is not a new trend, um, pretty prominent now. But I will say that um, a lot of times the way that news, the newspaper industry is going, a lot of guys get hired and they're very young with little experience and they're told hey go cover this NBA beat or this NFL beat and yeah and a lot of times i've found that they they completely miss the mark on what's important and what's not and yeah. and whereas you know guys like yourself who have been around a lot of times i think it's good because you will you'll pick up stories that maybe uh, a more passionate fan will want to hear i think it's a way of saying you guys keep your eye on the ball a little bit more than maybe somebody who's a little greener to the process. Yeah, it, it's been an interesting process of, you know, coming in, being the young guy, you know, trying to feel your way around and try to, you know, looking up to older guys or in some cases looking at older guys and think they don't know what they're doing. Uh, <laughs> and then, you know, you get at the other end, like Larry, you know, and I are, and, you know, you look at the younger guys coming in and <laughs> and some of them are really good and some of them aren't. But it's uh, you kind of go through that process where you go from being, you know, the, the same age as the people you're covering to being, you know, older than the people you're covering. And it's, uh, Until it's you become very much older than the people that you're covering. <laughs> <laughs> you could be their grandfather, yeah. you know, this kind of thing. Exactly. So it, it is interesting, but it, I, I never cease to be fascinated by the games. Uh, you know, I never get tired of going to the games. It's always interesting to go into the locker room and uh, to see athletes. I mean, you know, this particular Pacer team this year, was you know that was a great situation they had great camaraderie and these guys were really mature you know more mature than the aba pacers were i can tell you that you know? <laughs> so, <laughs> well you know, and i know i got to know those guys so it um you know for people again who want to say that oh the players back then were so much better so much more dedicated so much harder working no they weren't not by any not by a long shot well and and, and a lot of times not, not to any fault of their own it's just you didn't you didn't spend 365 days a year on your craft as you do now you know right i, I remember uh yeah you the, had to have the, you had to have a used car salesman shop <laughs> right i mean and i remember the, the famous clip of a, a female reporter went up to john crook in the phillies locker room and he was drinking a beer and smoking a cigarette after a ball game and she said uh, she kind of called him out. And she said, "So you consider yourself an af- you consider yourself an athlete?" And he he looked at her and he said, 
He goes, I'm not an athlete. I'm a ball player. <laughs> and it was like, you know, there was no nutritionist on staff. There was no, no guy stretching him out or, you know, that kind of thing. It was like, hey, go out and play. And oh, then- I can remember. I can remember like it was yesterday in the uh, – this would have been in the 19 – late 60s, early 70s. I was at the ball game in Cleveland, old municipal stadium, and – my best friend Chucky Anderson and I, we used to always get a seat for a dollar seventy-five reserve seat out in the left uh, upper deck, left field upper deck. We'd be the only two people out there because, <laughs> I mean, the Indians only drew maybe eight thousand a game at that time, and they were so bad. And I remember going after the ball game, and I smoked cigarettes at the time. Winston's actually, and, and, and we went to uh, and we went to the locker room to stand outside to see if we see any players come out and they had a young guy come out i mean he was about five foot three and major league player's name was vic davalio you guys remember that name vic davalio the guy comes up to me he has picked his uh, blue jeans are paid to his ankles he comes up to me and he says hey dude can i have a cigarette <laughs> he's, a major, he's a major league ball player uh, he bumped up Winston's cigarette on me. I still talk about it. It's one of the greatest stories of my life. He, he, he bumped the cigarette off of me, man. He's a big league ball player. Hey, ABA Pacers smoked cigarettes at halftime of games. Oh, sure, they, sure they did. And, you know, he'd light up at halftime of a game, and they'd light up after the game. And that wasn't that unusual back then. No, so, yeah. no and, wonder careers were shorter. And in the locker room. I mean, think about oh, yes. that. I mean, yes. you, you can't smoke anywhere inside now. <laughs> well, think about Johnny Most and how much he, he lit it up right there to the very end, you know. Yeah. Red Auerbach, of course, too. You'd always have a cigar at the end of a game when he knew that they won. It was a completely different thing back then. Yeah. No question about did, it. Did you ever smoke during a game, Chris, while you were doing a game? Uh, Football. Yeah? Football, I did. Yeah. Uh, never basketball, never inside, you know. I mean, outside, like, a high school game. <laughs> Yeah, I might grab a little smoke. Uh, yeah. yeah. There's that one story about, you mentioned Johnny Most, the Celtics announcer. He'd smoke during games, and he had that smoker's voice. And supposedly during a game, he's doing, the game's on. And he's like, and Burr passes inside to McHale, and all my pants are on fire. <laughs> <laughs> he just had a dropped in his lamp. <laughs> oh, man. There was a, a when I was uh, doing sports information work at in the ACC when I was with Duke, there was a story about, uh, uh, Dean Smith would always travel to the game separate from the team. He would always drive, follow the team bus in on a, in a car. And Dean was a smoker, and he used to always step outside the building and have a cigarette before the game. And when he would go to when they would go play at Maryland, they would stand outside the field house there and uh, have a he'd have a cigarette. And there was a longtime sports information guy from Maryland that used to stay out there and have a cigarette with him. And one year he shows up and he goes outside and he says, where's Mark at? And they said, he's, he didn't hear coach. He passed away this summer. He had lung cancer. And apparently it shocked Dean so much. He stopped smoking. After that. Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah. So and cause, Dean, cause Dean's wife was a medical doctor. Wasn't she? Oh, yeah, yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, there's a bit, huh? Dean Smith was a Scotch drinker and a c- cigarette smoker, and, and of course used no blue language. And then the, <laughs> the, they always used to say what a contrasting style because Coach Shashevsky was a wine drinker, didn't smoke, and had very colorful language. And the two were a contrast in styles a lot of times. So yeah, 
Well, Mark, we want to get down to the final four here with you. These are four questions we ask all our first-time guests on the podcast. So, all right. Our first question for you is: What is your go-to music of choice? Oh well, well, I, I like a lot of different music. I, you know, actually, my favorite genre of music would be old R and B, like out of the fifties and sixties. Uh, that's probably what I call up the most. Um, okay. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the, the black music of the 50s and 60s is probably the category. So the Little the, like. little Richards and the uh, Chuck Berries? Yeah, and- yeah that and, and even, you know, with those, the Drifters, the Coasters, Winoni Harris. Yeah. Uh, you know, wow. there's just a lot of, un, not just Motown, but a lot of lesser known uh, artists. You know, I Little Anthony you know, and the Imperials? Uh, sure. Yeah, tears on my pillow. Yeah, That's tears on my pillow. And, yeah. Um, a lot of great music is probably what I go to. You know, when I get up in the morning, I'm always telling Alexa to play, you know, something you know, from that genre. But I'm a huge Beatles fan, not just the music, but the story behind how these four guys from Liverpool found each other and became the greatest force in the history of entertainment that still reigns today. I mean, you, not a day goes by, you don't hear some kind of Beatles reference, probably. And uh, I always compared the Beatles to a, a basketball team. You know, like you had great chemistry with four guys. You had two superstars. You had a great supporting player in George Harrison. You had a locker room guy in Ringo who everybody liked. You know, George Martin, their producer, was kind of a player coach who was the adult in the room who kept them going. And, you know, while it, while at their peak, you know, their chemistry was unbelievable. And then it kind of came apart as years went by. But they've always reminded me of a basketball team. Yeah, you and I have talked about that before. My wife's a huge Beatles fan. And we've got, we've probably got a dozen Beatles books on the shelf at home. Um, yeah. And uh, a lot, a lot written on them. And I know you and I have talked about all the times they appear in pop culture. And you, oh, you, yeah. you reference each of their roles. There was a great bit on... Um, Stephen Colbert's old show before he hosted The Tonight Show, back when it was The Colbert Report on Comedy Central. And he did a little segment on the Beatles, and he said uh, Paul was the, um, I guess, the popular Beatle. Um, John was the intellectual Beatle. George, the quiet Beatle. And Ringo, the luckiest man on the face of the earth. <laughs> yeah, but he was crucial to their chemistry. Absolutely, absolutely. So there's a there's a ton of great uh, great Beatles stories in some of those books. I know yeah. you even recommended a couple of the of the ones that you thought were the better ones that uh, we ended up reading, my wife and I, and they were they were fantastic. So yeah, yeah, you know, it's just an amazing thing that today people still talk about them all the time, and the music's as popular as ever. And there's about a dozen groups running around imitating them and playing their songs and oh, hey, the, the cool thing cool thing about them is that i was at of age you know i was 63 let's see i was uh 1964 i think they made their first appearance in america right 64 the, yeah on the ann sullivan show and i can remember in, in 64 i was a junior in high school and i i can yeah. remember i can remember us all sitting around waiting for them to that old Ed Sullivan would come out and, and introduce him and to see the Here Beatles live. <laughs> yeah, it was unbelievable. Yeah, man. and unbelievable. I, I've never met anybody who, you know, didn't watch that episode. I mean, it was just a national phenomenon. And I remember the next day at school, all the girls were talking about which one they liked the best. And the guys who had hair were combing it down, you know, <laughs> trying to have bangs. I mean, it was just an overnight sensation thing that, you know, will never happen again. Yeah, never happen again. Okay, question number two here on the final four. What is your favorite book or maybe a book you've read recently that you've enjoyed? 
Uh, you know, this is appropriate. I just finished uh, last week uh, Seth Davis's book on John Wooden. Okay. Um, it's really good, like 500 pages. It's called Wooden, uh, A Coach's Life. Well-researched and well-written. You know, I mean, like you guys, I have had great admiration for John Wooden. And I, you know, I did my radio show with him, did a couple episodes. I was out of his condo in Encino, California, a couple times mm -hmm. to meet with him. So, you know, I've always had great interest in his life and, uh, you know, admiration for his accomplishments. And this was a really objective, good book, uh, you know, dealt with the Sam Gilbert issue fairly, I thought. And, you know, talked about Wooden's flaws, but also recognized his greatness. And uh, so that's the last book I finished, which I think is appropriate for this podcast. Absolutely. And what about, and what about Drew Brees this past week uh, or last week? Yeah, uh, purchasing, that purchasing that jersey for over $250,000 <laughs> and then saying he's going to give it to uh, Purdue. Uh, it's never said that he, that he doesn't own it, but he said it's going to be in Mackey Arena forever. Yeah, which and I'm sure Mackey's going to probably be around here longer than Drew's going to be around. So, I mean, he, yeah. his family will know about it. So that's amazing. It's another it – I've often said this uh, in my 40, now second year, covering Purdue sports, I've never been around a guy like Drew Brees. He, he is who, – Yeah, who, that, that was very, very special for him to do that. And um, Coach Wooden is one of those icons. He's 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 – um, his legacy has really endured well and, you know, a yes. pyramid of success. And, you know, obviously it helps when you've won that much and your name keeps coming up in the record book conversations that are always, you know, talked about, especially around tournament time. But um, I, I was able to go see coach Wooden with coach Painter and the staff um, a number of years ago. And the most impressive person I've ever been around that I've ever yeah. spent time with. I mean, his, uh, his memory, um, his two most admired people of all time were Abraham Lincoln and Mother Teresa. Mm -hmm. And he had stacks of books on each one in his little condo yeah. there. And he could recite, yeah. I mean, he could recite <clears throat> passages out of books. You know, you or I may drop a quote or a Jimmy Rail story and, you know, hey, it's, <laughs> hey that's pretty good. He could yeah. recite page after page verbatim. Yes. I mean, un, the most incredible mind I've ever been around. He wrote poetry, and to me, I mean, the 10 national championships speak for themselves, seven in a row, um, but the relationship he had with his former players, right. you know, is really the most impressive thing, and, you know, I, you know, some people want to go right to Sam Gilbert and claim that Wooden cheated, and he wouldn't have won without Sam Gilbert and all that. Uh, to me, that is absolutely not true, and while Wooden, you know, could have been more uh, involved and in, in trying to keep that thing under control he wasn't using sam gilbert to recruit players he wasn't saying you come here this guy will take care of you it wasn't like that at all in fact they told they kept telling sam gilbert to stay away and he just wouldn't do it right but uh his former players you know the way they look back on their time with him and the love they had for him you know can't be denied so uh and is there a better above the rest and is there a better person in the world than bill walton to talk about it <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what was Endlessly. what was funny is as we were sitting there in Coach Wooden's condo, um, the phone would ring every you know two minutes, and yep. he would always put his finger in the air. and And John Wooden had huge hands, and when we were meeting with him, he was right in the neighborhood of 90, 90 years old. His hands yeah. were huge, and he'd put his big finger up in the air and be like, "Everybody, hold on a minute!" And everybody would would be quiet, and the phone would ring two or three times, and then the answering machine would pick up. And every 
phone call that came in, we've been with them about a day and a half, so there were probably a dozen phone calls that came in. Every time it was a former player, and every time it would ring, I would say to myself in my head, please be Bill Walton, please be Bill Walton, <laughs> because we would just listen to the recording or the message they were leaving for Coach. and be like, hey, Coach, it's so-and-so, just want to check in and say hi, hope everything's doing well. Uh, you know, give me a call when you get a chance, love you. And they all signed off, you know, love you, and, and then hung up. And I thought, boy, if Bill Walton leaves a message, it is going to be great. And he never did. <laughs> well, Walton, you know, when he was like in Australia for the Olympics, he called Wooden every day from Australia. And he'd leave like a two-minute message, you know, and you know he'd apologize for what he was like and, you know, tell him he loved him. And it was just amazing. But, but that quick side note, Bill Walton is that kind of guy. I, I once – I have a friend here in town who's a big Bill Walton fan because he's a Grateful Dead fan for one yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. And so he was having a birthday, and I didn't tell the guy I was doing it, but I texted Walton saying, Could, "This guy's a huge fan of yours. Could you just call him and wish him happy birthday? He'd get a thrill out of that." So Walton did. It went. In, the guy's a doctor. He's a kidney specialist. His voice. He was working. The phone went to voicemail. Walt left a ninety-second voicemail message for this oh, guy he never met, that is wishing awesome. him a happy birthday. You know, I mean, that's Bill Walton right there. And, you know, I just read. Walton's book last year my uncle gave it to me um, and uh, I read his book and I had um, I don't know why but I had low expectations going into it and it was fantastic I mean there were so many great stories of his time at UCLA of his time with the Trailblazers and then throughout his career of being a broadcaster and things and you could tell like you know a lot of times you'll read a book and you'll say yeah he may have written it or somebody you know clearly somebody else wrote it and he kind of dictated and they put it together you could tell Bill put this whole thing together and it was great. I mean, the stories were really incredible. And I got to yeah. know him a little bit because I did a story as a student intern at Kansas on Eric Chenoweth, who worked out with the Walton boys in Southern California every year. So oh. I asked Eric Chenoweth, I was doing a program feature for the game program, and I said, do you think it would be okay if I called Mr. Walton, got a quote? He goes, oh, no, he'd love that. Here's his number. Call him. Yeah. So I called him, and he uh, answered the phone. He was getting ready to get on a plane. He was doing NBA broadcasting at the time. And he said, I will call you tomorrow at 1230. He said, okay, I'll be here. And so the next day, 1230 rolls around. He calls me on the dot. And it became a running joke in the sports information office of Kansas because as I picked up the phone, he goes, Elliot Bloom. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, Coach, I said, Mr. Walton, right here, how you doing? And, and he talked to me for 30 minutes. And we talked about yeah. everything. And we started talking about Grateful Dead. And, and I'm yeah. a big Grateful Dead fan. And, but he's one of those guys. He's just he, When he says he's got a passion for life, he is 100% yeah. genuine. In that. So, so, yeah, so give us, even though this is Mark's program, give us one minute at Bill Walton right now because this guy does bill walton well i asked so i asked walton i said give me a quote on eric chinowith eric chinowith he exemplifies the passion for life the wind blowing through your hair as you run up and down the floor he exemplifies what pure happiness is on the basketball floor Was and that the book, Elliot, where he talked about his, uh, you know, the surgery he had to have and, you know, how oh, he was you, yeah, and suicidal you and everything? Yeah, and you don't realize how um, broken down his body is. If you ever yeah, see Bill yeah. Walton in person, it's uh, oh, a little yeah. uncomfortable to watch him walk. He's, oh, uh, his ankles are fused together. Yeah, yeah his ankles are yeah. fused. His back, in part, is fused. And um, 
he's uh but he's obviously he's still pretty active always bikes and stuff now and you see yes. all those pac 12 games and he doesn't seem to be showing any signs of slowing 21 down. of 22 against the memphis tigers yeah. back in that day points. we may have to have try to get bill walton on the podcast at yeah. some point. oh he'd do it oh, he I, would do it i bet you yeah, would i bet he would too yeah. so. and another thing you know that you that book you know he had he was just like laying on the floor suicidal he was in so much pain and right. the doctor saved him with this new surgery and george mcginnis needs a similar surgery george is all bent over mm. using a cane to get around uh it's a congenital thing it's just, george's sister has had the surgery and it was successful but uh, you know i told walton about that and he mailed george he asked for george's address and mailed a book to him you know mm. again that's the kind of guy walton is just yeah. uh, he reaches out to people that's pretty cool yeah. Okay, so question three here on the final four. Is there any other profession, if you could wave a wand and do it tomorrow, what would that be? Oh, an athlete. You know, I, um, you know, basketball was always, you know, my sport. So to have been a major college or professional basketball player to me would have been the ultimate. I, I always thought also it would be cool to be a relief pitcher in baseball and come in and save the game, you know, <laughs> you yeah. come in and, and preserve a victory or that kind of thing. And, you know, you only got to throw for a couple of innings, right. and <laughs> sit out there in the bullpen with Smoke your buddies. Your cigarettes and- yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, so I always thought being a relief pitcher would be a great gig, but I would have, uh, you know, I mean, who, who among us wouldn't want to have been a, a big time athlete? You know, we yeah. all played high school sports, the three of us. And, and we, you know, uh, that would always be the dream, but you find out at some point that it ain't going to happen. So you got to find another way to be involved in sports. Yep. All right, final question here on the Final Four with Mark Monteith is, what is a little-known fact that no one or very few people know about you? Oh, boy. Let me see. Let me see. A little-known fact about me. I went to to Russia in 1985 and ran a marathon. I don't know. Really? Yeah. I I didn't know that. I've known you for a while. We've told a lot of stories, but I did not know that. Yeah, I did. That was interesting. I, uh, you know, I wasn't a big time runner. I didn't run cross country in high school or anything, but I was running and, and I just heard about this group from Indiana that was going to go to Moscow. And, uh, this is August of 85. And, uh, it was part of like a group of 60 people for the United States going over to run this marathon. And I'd always wow. told myself I was going to run one. So I trained, you know, throughout that summer, I'd go out at midnight in my neighborhood and run up and down the streets for like 10, 12 miles and, uh, went to Moscow and, uh, I finished it. It was, you know, I'd never run a marathon before. I'd hardly, I'd done a 10 K at one time, but, uh, we flew in the day we flew to London for a night. Then we flew to Moscow and flew in the day before. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't eat breakfast. I didn't oh, you can't have food in your stomach. So, you know, I just drank a protein drink or something. It was 95 degrees. Oh, my gosh. The race started in the afternoon. So I ran the first 13 miles in an hour and a half, and then I ran the next 13 in two and a half hours. And uh, I made it across the finish line, but it was not a lot of fun, but I was glad I did it still. Wow, that's incredible. And obviously, Moscow's changed a lot since... Uh... Oh, yeah, and it was fascinating. One of the most interesting things I've ever done was talk to uh, Russian people on the streets, you know, and they this is like the beginnings of Glasnost. Glasnost, you know, Gorbachev mm-hmm. is uh, in power there, and, you know, they're, man, you could tell they were fed up and eager to get into a, a different world. They were firing questions at me like, do you own your own car? And do you have a house? Do you have a VCR? You know, this kind of thing is all materialistic things. They knew they were getting wow. screwed out of having and, uh, traded some stuff. I took some cassette tapes of rock and roll music and traded them for, 
things, uh, family, you know, things that have been in the family for a hundred years, stuff like that. Uh, blue jeans they wanted. I mean, because the, the clothes they were able to get at that time were ridiculous. So it was fascinating to have those discussions on the streets because most well, of the Russian people there spoke English. Yeah, I can remember uh, in the early 80s, I guess, when uh, some of these Russian teams, uh, high school teams would come over and tour the States. And uh, one uh, group was over at Lafayette Jefferson, and I went over there to cover it for television. And I, I, I can always remember this. I was sitting in the bleacher part of uh, Jeff, and there in the, you know, kind of on the end zone, you know, or in the baseline. And I was thinking to myself, I was watching them warm up. I, I said, they don't look. Now, now seriously, I'm how old am I? By that forty. 40 or something. Yeah, I must be 40, 38, 40 years old. And I'm saying to myself, boy, they look they look just like us. They don't look any different than Americans look. I mean, yeah. I wonder, because that was how how you looked at someone from Russia. You thought, right. they're from Russia, man. They can't be like normal people. <laughs> That's true. You, you know, it's like the state, for some reason, none of us can understand that the state the state controls everything it's not the people <laughs> and the people yeah. are a lot more like you than you ever thought that, that they would be but i just yep. I, I kept looking at them warm up and i said gosh their layups look pretty much the same as we put them up there <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah it's always yeah. stood in my mind over the years wow they have two feet wow yeah <laughs> exactly well, that's that's one thing sports has done is you know kind of break down some of those barriers yeah yeah there's a uh the there's a great show the, called The Americans that just wrapped up this week. It's a series finale, but it was based is based in the '80s, and it was based on uh, two um, uh, Russians that were implanted basically in the United States to be husband wife, and they were here for 30 years as Russian spies. And it all takes place in the '80s. A great show. It's it just wrapped up. It was an FX show that, uh, but a lot of '80s references and it kind of takes you back to the Cold War and that relationship and yeah there was a lot of uh, propagandizing on both sides about sure. e- each other's country so yeah highly recommend question. that show the americans well mark it's been uh, it's been great man i i we could do three hours of, of yes, stories with you and, and i'm sure we'll have you on uh, down the road but uh continued success with everything and um uh, and uh what you do and and again it's markmonteith.com if people want to go on and check out your work uh, your radio work with the one-on-one series and and books you've written and the uh, articles you've done as well as all located there and we just want to uh thank you for taking time to join us yes thank hey, you. anytime guys i enjoyed it we could go all day I, I, if i could throw out real quick i got a book signing saturday at the books a million location on west 86th street indianapolis over in the traders point area uh from about well we'll be signing books from around two to four uh my reborn book on the beginnings of the pacer franchise jerry harkness will be out there with me so do you uh, so so when you do something like that do you put h-o-f on the end of your name (laughs) (laughs) you know i should start doing that that's a good idea if you do you should charge for the h-o-f signature regular monty signature fine but if you want the h-o-f on it's an extra two bucks (laughs) yeah i thought about that but i'll give that some thought that's a good idea but anyway we'll be out there saturday from two to four signing copies of the Pacers book and uh, I mean I, I appreciate uh, you guys having me on uh, I'd be happy to sit down with you guys and talk whether we were doing a podcast or not 
Well, we'll do it. We'll do it uh, here again. I promise you that. Too many, too many stories that need telling. So we'll we'll, we'll hook up at some point again. Sounds good. Thank right. you, guys. Thanks, All Mark. Right. Appreciate See it. See you, Mark. So Mark uh, Monteith there, and uh, doesn't get much better for stories. He's got a million of those. A um, couple items here to wrap up before we uh, conclude the podcast. Wanting to uh, bring up a email we had had uh, our analytics guy Andrew McClatchy was on couple episodes right. ago and one of the things we talked about with andrew was uh, the tamale place the tamale shop on the, in indianapolis that i mentioned on the west side there and uh i asked i had asked people to weigh in on that and at, at our email boilerballpodcast at gmail.com adam reached out and said uh had a couple suggestions for the podcast but he said um, brought up the fact that he said uh he goes to the tamale um, shop quite frequently and his recommendation was to get there at 11 o'clock because he said you'll get your pick of uh, all the good tamales he said most the key is to get there about 11 15 when they still have all the varieties and you can get a seat he said but by one o'clock the selection's pretty thin and throughout the noon hour it is packed so adam confirmed our uh, our hunch that that is a great place to go get a tamale in indianapolis uh, to all our listeners, if you have any feedback for the podcast, please uh, send it our way, boilerballpodcast at gmail.com. A lot of you have reached out to inquire about certain guests uh, for future podcasts, and Sylvia Booker is hard at work on those. We've got some former players in the pipeline um, and some other people around the program that we'll be getting on. I uh, want to thank everybody for tuning in. Uh, this was our first podcast back after our spring break, so to speak. We took a few weeks off here after the season was over. And uh, we'll be back at it here throughout the summer. So, Cliz, any final parting shots? No, absolutely not. Good to see you. And great to have Mark on. Look forward to, I think we're going to tape another one tomorrow, actually. So, yeah. we have another one to do tomorrow to put, line, line put them the up bed. and yeah. crank them out. So, yeah. all right. Well, that was episode 42 here on the Boiler Ball Podcast. Appreciate everyone for listening, as always. And until next time, be curious, be informed, and be well.